Hi, my name is Peter Beinart. I'm a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Jerome Slater, who is Emeritus Professor of Political Science and University Research Scholar at SUNY Buffalo, who has a very interesting new book out um, called uh, Mythologies Without End. Uh, and so, uh, Jerome, welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. Thank you for having me. So you write in the prologue of the book about the, the journey that led you um, to, to ultimately to the place where you wrote this. And it's a journey that involved you at one point um, volunteering for the Israeli Navy. So I wonder if you could just talk, start by talking a little bit about your background, your experience with Israel and how it ultimately led you to the place where you've come to the conclusions that you've come. Yes, uh, well, I'm um, almost 86. So I'm uh, in a sense, a child of the Holocaust the coming of age of in uh, New York in the, uh, in the 1940s. Uh, naturally, uh, I, as almost everybody I knew, was heavily influenced by the Holocaust and delighted by the uh, creation of the State of Israel in 1948. Uh, and uh, also uh, for its victory, which at that time we thought was unexpected in the, uh, not only in 1948, but in the 1967 war. So I was extremely pro-Israel and I can't, I don't know anybody who was Jewish and growing up in that era who wasn't. I suppose there were some. Uh, uh, from 1957 to 1960, I was a, an officer in the American Navy on a destroyer. And my uh, job was uh, anti-submarine warfare, ASW as it was called. Well, sometime after I got out, but a few years after I got out of the Navy, the uh, Egyptians bought four submarines from the uh, Soviet Union uh, at a time when the, there was hardly any Israeli Navy. Uh, and so I thought that uh, if war should break out again, uh, that, uh, uh, that maybe I could be of some use until the, um, the, the Israel had a chance to train its own uh, people in uh, ASW. So I, I wrote, I think it was around um, 1968, 1969, something like that. I wrote to the Israeli uh, embassy uh, and said, if war should break out, uh, and of course the, uh, my premise was, it was if war should break out because Egypt uh, attacked Israel without provocation, that I would be happy to serve in whatever, uh, however I could until they had trained their own people. I think I got a response which said something like, well, thank you very much, but uh, it won't be necessary. Uh, but then within a couple of years after that, I began to change my mind about the whole uh, history and, and the contemporary history, because it was evident to me that the Egyptians were seeking, even under Nasser, uh, were seeking to uh, negotiate a settlement with Israel, and Israel was blocking it. Uh, and there were, uh, as I described in my book, there's all kinds of evidence of overtures from uh, Nasser and then, of course, Sadat afterward. Uh, to settle on the basis of a compromise, essentially Israel withdraws from the Sinai and uh, Egypt agrees to a peace settlement with Israel. So I, I simply uh, changed my mind about where the responsibility for the continuing conflict uh, lay. And, and almost everything since then has reinforced my belief that Israel has been overwhelmingly responsible for the failure of there to be an overall 
Arab-Israeli state settlement, and then of course a settlement with the Palestinians. Right. So you you actually start the book before the creation of the state of Israel, right? You start the book in 1917. Right. Um, and the book is built around the idea of myths, um, you know, things that have a lot of currency in, in the American Jewish community, in Israel itself, in the American political mainstream that you want to challenge. So, so why don't we start at the beginning? What, what do you see as the first kind of big myth that you set out to challenge in the book? Well, most of, I mean, I have several myths that I want to address, but, oh, but, but the primary uh, organizing principle of the book is... Uh, to counter uh, Abbot Iban's famous comment in the early 70s that the Arabs never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity for peace. And my argument is that that has it backwards, that overwhelmingly the evidence shows that it's been Israel which has had many opportunities for peace, separate pieces with almost all the Arab countries overall peace with the Arab world, peace with the Palestinians, or at least certainly uh, the mainstream of the Palestinians, the PLO under Arafat, and of course Abbas since then, uh, and that it's been Israel which has either deliberately discarded, even sabotaged uh, potential peace agreements, uh, or uh, has taken such rigid positions uh, that uh, no peace agreement has been uh, been possible. Now, of course, that's been overcome in individual cases, in the case of Egypt and the peace settlement with Jordan and so on. Uh, but even those came years after they might have been reached or should have been reached and wars with them would have been avoided. My argument is that depending on how you count wars, there have been something like 10 to 14 wars or at least significant armed conflicts between Israel and the Arab states, and every one of them, including 1948, was probably avoidable had Israel been willing to make compromises which were not only legitimate and reasonable, but which were really in their own enlightened self-interest. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the main argument. There are a couple of other right, things right. I deal with, but that's the main one. So, so let's go through this chronologically a little bit, because as you know, there are a lot of people, uh, you know, who I know, and you probably know, you know, who are right now, their their heads are exploding right now, and they're saying, "What is this guy Slater talking about? This is this is completely uh, uh, anathema to everything that uh, you know that I believe." So, um, so let, let's start at the very at the very beginning, right? You know, and um, I'll rehearse the the standard narrative, and you can explain to me why you think it's 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 incorrect, right? The standard narrative about the founding is that there was, um, the, the UN agreed on partition, um, that the Zionist leadership, the Yishuv, accepted that partition, the Arab, uh, the Arab countries and the Palestinian leadership on the ground rejected it, um, and essentially then began a, uh, began, fighting, you know, started rioting, which ultimately led to, led to violence, which ultimately led to, to, the, to the war that dispossessed Palestinians and, and, um, and resulted in Israel with its, its boundaries at, at creation. So what's wrong with that narrative? Yeah, well, let me start by saying, making a, a kind of a disclaimer here. Uh, obviously I'm making, I'm, I'm countering the mythology at almost, every, at almost every turn. Anything I'm gonna say here now is going to be an assertion. It all depends on the evidence, uh, and uh, the evidence is what I develop uh, in, uh, in in my book at uh, considerable length and with considerable reference to 
the most important sources, including, by the way, uh, Israeli uh, po political leaders, retired military, retired uh, Mossad, Shin Bet, so on and so forth. So, okay, so they're going to be assertions right now, but you, one has to read the book in order to see the evidence. Let me begin with the, uh, with the UN partition. There simply isn't any serious question that Israel accepted the UN partition, accepted in quotes, uh, as a temporary tactic until they were strong enough to overturn it. Mm. Ben-Gurion and many others said as much as that internally, repeatedly. Uh, so it was, uh, and laid out quite explicitly that, okay, we, uh, this is a good start. We'll accept the, uh, this now we'll build up our military forces. Mm. And when we're strong enough, we will take what uh, legitimately belongs to us. And what, what does legitimately belong to Israel? Well, in some versions, it was Palestine uh, in its most uh, widest uh, interpretation would include large parts of the Southern Lebanon, uh, the Golan Heights and other parts of Syria, certainly the West Bank without a question, so on and so forth. So the, the first myth is that Israel accepted uh, the, uh, the UN partition. They didn't really accept it in any meaningful sense. And what they predicted is of course what happened, uh, that when they became strong enough, they began to expand. Uh, uh, and uh, well, I'll stop. I'll stop right there. What was, what's the next uh, part of this? Right, so, so I guess, so I guess one might say, um, okay, fine. Uh, maybe, maybe these, you know, these, maybe the, uh, the, 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 the Jewish Zionist leaders were not willing to accept that partition because after all, it would have left, it would have created a Jewish state with a very, very large Palestinian minority, which would have been problematic from the Zionist perspective. Um, right. But, but shouldn't, Shouldn't the Arab governments and the Palestinian local leadership have, have accepted it anyway? Wouldn't it have at least been smart for them to 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 say, you know, yes, to, to, to accept and then move from there as the Zionists did rather than say, you know, we reject the whole thing? You're referring to the Palestinian rejection of the of the UN partition yeah, plan. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, yes, I think you can make that argument that as things turned out, uh, that uh, they would have been uh, in retrospect, they would have been wise to have accepted it. Uh, they did consider, yes, I agree with that. They did consider it to be very unfair and there was a very strong argument that it was unfair. Um, uh, the, the UN part, well, uh, there was a strong argument that it was unfair. Uh, they decided to resist it and they, and they lost. You can make that argument, but it doesn't change the fact that the Israelis were never willing to accept, oh, oh, by the way, part of the reason the Palestinians rejected in 1947, the partition plan is that they believed, and they had very good reason to believe that Israel was not going to uh, settle for that, that uh, it, would, it would later, as soon as it became strong enough, it would expand uh, uh, to, to include all of historic Palestine and there's no question that that was Ben-Gurion's and the goal of Ben-Gurion and many others. Now, you can still say that, well, it still was a mistake. Uh, and perhaps it was a mistake. But one has to remember the context that they considered it to be un not only unfair on its face, but that uh, it wouldn't last because when Israel became strong enough, it would take all of what it considered to be historic Palestine. And it's not difficult to find 
all kinds of quotes, not only from Ben-Gurion, but from many other early Israeli leaders, early Zionist leaders, that the ultimate goal was historic Palestine, however that was defined. Do you want to just say something about, about why the Palestinians saw that particular partition as unfair? Uh, why they thought it was unfair. Um, you know, that all of, uh, that they considered that all of the Palestine was uh, belonged to the Palestinians, of course. Uh, so I'm not sure where you're going with that question. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think, no, that, that's fair. I mean, I also think that some would have said that, you know, the, the Palestinians, as I understand, were two thirds of the population at that point. They were only given 43% of the of the land. So the, the, right. the, the distribution was considered to be inequitable, although you make a point that, that may, may, maybe Palestinians would have respect, would have would have rejected it, even if there had there, even if it had been a different distribution of, of land. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. Well, I don't know. If it had been a different distribution, it would have changed their calculations some, to some right, extent. Right. But they expected, and they had every reason to expect, that the Israelis would not accept the Palestinians. They would accept, in quotation right. marks, the, uh, the uh, UN partition, but they would expand as soon as they were strong enough to do so. That's what they thought. And the reason they thought that is because that's what the Zionist leadership was saying. So right. there wasn't any real mystery about what Ben-Gurion's ultimate... Uh, objectives were right so yeah. so let's let's move forward in history to to, to 1967 um and i think the standard uh you know jewish and and american narrative is that um uh uh israel was um uh on the verge of 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 a, an attack went, meant to destroy it um uh by egypt but also by by syria and by others and um uh, had no choice but to launch a a, a surprise a kind of preemptive attack in order to save itself from what could have been even ultimately a, a second Holocaust. Yeah, most of the uh, literature doesn't accept that uh, interpretation any longer. Uh, that, um, uh, and, and, and none other than Menachem Begin said that in 1969, that of course we had a choice in 1967, we decided to, to attack. Um, the, uh, Let's see, where do I want to go with this? Um, let me see if I can find a quote from, I'm not going to see if I can find the quote from Begin, but uh, the Israelis knew, the Israeli military and political leadership knew that uh, they were in a much stronger position than, uh, than uh, the, uh, Egypt was, uh, and Egypt and Syria, and they decided to make the attack in any case. Um, so, uh, this depends, I mean, that's just an assertion at this level. I have to tell the evidence for that. And that's what uh, I, uh, I, I uh, do in the, in, the, uh, in, in the book. It was an opportunity, thanks to the Arab mistakes for Israel to make an attack that wasn't really necessary in order to preserve itself because it was much stronger uh, than uh, the Syrians and the Egyptians and it knew it. Uh, Let's, the, the, um, I would say that the kind of uh, a standard argument that's made about the Oslo process is that, um, uh, that essentially it was, the, the PLO's acceptance of Israel uh, was, was a duplicitous um, and um, that, that there was, that Yasser Arafat was never actually, never actually believed in, um, in actually accepting Israel. And in fact, was complicit in, in, in terrorist actions. 
during the Oslo period of the 1990s. Um, uh, so essentially the Palestinians were not operating in good faith. So maybe we could ask about that and then we'll move on to talking about specifically about, about Camp David in, in 2000. Well, I know that's the argument, but uh, it's not supported by the, uh, the evidence. Uh, the, uh, uh, that Arafat, uh, uh, Arafat wasn't, uh, was, was sometimes ambiguous as to whether he, uh, as to what he accepted and what he didn't, but the overwhelming weight of the evidence as developed uh, in my book and, and, and uh, my book is based on uh, other scholarship on, on that process is that the, uh, he, was, he was willing to accept uh, a political settlement from probably from the 1970s onward, certainly into the 1980s, uh, and uh, that the Oslo process fell apart partly because Israel was not satisfied with uh, with an accept. The Oslo was supposed to produce a uh, a Palestinian state at the end of a five year process. Uh, uh, Israelis, including uh, or particularly Rabin, made it clear that uh, they didn't see it that way. That the, at, at mo Rabin said, uh, at most we will accept the Palestinian entity. Words to that effect. He continued to expand the settlements. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the process broke down in part because Israel's uh, and Begin's continuing expansion of the settlements, and in part because Hamas, although not uh, the PLO uh, began to turn to very serious terrorism. Mm. So the process uh, gradually fell apart, uh, but there isn't much doubt that the evidence shows that Arafat was willing to accept a two-state settlement, a limited state, 22% or so of, of Palestine, as the outcome that he had no choice but to accept of the uh, political process, the Oslo process and many other negotiations. Some might, you, uh, yeah, some might say, well, okay, but you know, um, even if Arafat was willing to, um, what what should um, you know? How do you reckon with the fact that that Hamas had not accepted Israel's um, existence, and that Hamas was, as you say, not the only entity responsible for for acts of, of violence, but but certainly it was responsible for acts of violence, including suicide bombings. Which had an impact on Israeli politics in the 1990s. So, so how does how does factor that into the into the? Well, I, I would say that what Israel should have done was to say yes, we accept that this is a, a tragic situation that we have been at least as responsible for the uh, conflict between uh, ourselves and the Palestinians since uh, 1917. Uh, we've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. Uh, we agree to a, a genuine two-state. Uh, settlement. Now, uh, under those circumstances, had they said that and had they meant that mm -hmm. and had they taken uh, steps to negotiate um, all the various steps toward a two-state settlement, and then Hamas, not Arafat in the PLO, but then Hamas and Islamic Jihad, you know, the radicals uh, say, no, we don't accept the two-state settlement, and uh, they set out to destroy it. Well, under those circumstances, uh, not only would Israel have every have both the right and the need to uh, counter that to repress them, um, but so would Arafat and the PLO. Uh, so that uh, uh, that's that's the answer to the uh, to the question. Hamas had to be defeated uh, 
terrorism had to be defeated, but then also the causes of the terrorism, uh, uh, Israeli intransigence and refusal to agree to a two-state settlement, not to mention various forms of repression of the Palestinians, um, uh, made that uh, impossible. So that answer your question? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you know, there's a. Let's move to to, to 2000. So, um, this this argument has resurfaced a little bit now because of the appointment or potential appointment of Rob Malley as an envoy to Iran, and and, and Rob Malley was one of the negotiators um, at Camp David who took a different view than than Dennis Ross uh, did about what actually happened there. So, I would say again, the standard narrative I would say is that um, uh, Barack made a. Um, uh, um, went way beyond any previous Israeli prime minister and offered a Palestinian state on the vast majority of the West Bank with a capital in East Jerusalem. Um, and the Palestinians made no counter offer um, and not only made no counter offer, but then the Palestinian leadership uh, was complicit in the uh, eruption of the uh, second intifada that fall, which ultimately, which, which made the peace process untenable. So what would be your response to that? Well, that's part of the mythology that I examine in, in great detail. Mm. Uh, no one knows for sure mm. what uh, Barack was really prepared to accept and what, for that matter, what he really offered, because there's no official record of it. And Barack contradicted himself many times. The, the general consensus, I believe, among scholars now about Camp David is that uh, uh, that, that one of the main sticking points was Jerusalem, mm. as it has always been, that Barack was not prepared to compromise over Jerusalem, to share Jerusalem with, uh, with the uh, Palestinians. Uh, and he made proposals and he withdrew proposals and he changed his proposals and so on. Um, uh, I quote in the book, a statement by Shlomo Ben-Ami, who mm. was the Israeli foreign minister at the time, uh, who said in his, he wrote a book in his memoirs and in his book, he took the standard position. We were prepared to compromise and they weren't. But then afterward, he said quite explicitly that uh, we didn't give the Palestinians enough. If I had been a Palestinian, I wouldn't have accepted this uh, either. So uh, Barack uh, blew hot and cold over how far he was willing to go right. uh, over uh, in, in, in this. There's no possibility of a political settlement with the Palestinians that doesn't recognize uh, a legitimate Palestinian role in Jerusalem, meaning East Jerusalem these days. Right. And Barack uh, was not prepared to agree to that. Uh, right. So it broke down. Now, now in, the, in the book, I, I do accept the argument that Arafat bears some responsibility for that. And the main responsibility he bore is that, um, at one point, he seemed to take a harder line position on the right of return, insisting mm -hmm. that all Palestinians, uh, uh, including their, uh, their successors who were, um, uh, were there in 1948, have a right to return to the state, which is now the state of Israel. Uh, it was a big mistake, and he quickly began to back away from it. And it's the, the overwhelming evidence. Once again, this is one of those things where you, you assert the evidence, so you have to see the evidence. The overwhelming evidence is that not only Arafat, but uh, all of his successors, probably including even Hamas, although the evidence is more ambiguous in that case, 
know that there's no possibility of a return other than a symbolic number of uh, Palestinians to Israel. So the right of return, which is often considered to be uh, to prevent any kind of agreement from being reached, is largely myth mythological because the Palestinians know they can't get that and they know that they, uh, that they have prepared to compromise and accept something, a symbolic acceptance. Symbolic meaning they want the Israelis to acknowledge that they have a significant share of responsibility for the creation of the refugee crisis, but that uh, they'll accept in concrete terms 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 refugees uh, going back. I don't know if you intend to get into the Olmert negotiations, but, but it becomes clearer there what the Palestinian uh, uh, position uh, was. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about that since that's you know that that's also part of this. The idea is that also that that Omer went even further than Barack did in the summer of two thousand, um, and yet again the argument is that also that the the idea that the proposal was rejected, that the Palestinians did not counter offer. Um, uh, so, to talk about 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 your analysis of the two thousand seven two thousand eight Omer Abbas negotiation. Well, by the way, in that context, going back to your earlier one, what the uh, what the Palestinian this idea that the Palestinians uh, uh, made no counter offers. It's just a silly, as the Palestinians pointed out, we are now prepared to accept 22% of historic Palestine. We don't really agree that, uh, that you have a right to uh, 78%, but nonetheless, we accept that. So if that isn't a counter offer, I don't know what, uh, what is. And they made, you know, they were prepared to accept some kind of sharing of Jerusalem, uh, to, to essentially drop the right of return, uh, to accept certain territorial exchanges and this one. So they made all kinds of compromises, including, as they pointed out, the most important compromise is we accept the two-state solution. Wow. We don't think that they, we have a right to be a, a two-state solution, uh, but we we accept it. It's a, it's a fait accompli. Uh, right. Remind well, me of talk your, a little bit about the, about the Omer Abbas negotiations in particular. Yeah, there's, it's this, one of the problems we have with those negotiations is, is, is like the Camp David negotiations, there's no official written record of them. Uh, so there are conflicting interpretations of what was said by who and when and so on and so forth. It seems clear that uh, Omer was prepared to go considerably further than uh, Barack. Uh, Barack is hard to understand because he, he says one thing uh, one day and he says the opposite the other day. Omer admitted explicitly that his hardline position was mistaken uh, and that he had uh, changed it. I think he was genuinely willing to agree to a, uh, a legitimate two-state uh, settlement uh, with the Palestinians getting, I don't know, 98% of, uh, of the... Uh, uh, of the area, the West Bank and Gaza and so on. Uh, uh, Abbas made it clear that uh, the right of return would not become a major issue. They were in discussing, should it be 50,000 refugees, could it be 10,000 refugees and so on, but not three or four million would return. So it doesn't appear that that was the, uh, the, the major issue. The problem was that Omar was also uh, in a politically very weak position. I think at one point, it's hard to believe this, he had uh, only 3% of Israelis uh, 
supported uh, his position. He also was engaged in um, uh, major attacks uh, in, on uh, Palestinians in Gaza, uh, Operation Cast Lead and so on. Uh, uh, and his political position was very weak. Now, I think a strong case can be made that despite that, Abbas should have said, grab this with two hands and say, yes, we accept this and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't do that. Um, uh, part, there are various arguments as to why he didn't. Part of it was that he could see that Omar was in an increasingly weak position and he didn't know whether this would, would even stand up. Nonetheless, I think he made a mistake. He should have said, uh, he should have seized upon the most favorable components of Omar's uh, uh, proposals and tried to resolve the ambiguities as best he could and have accepted, and he failed uh, to do that. That doesn't prove in any way that the Palestinians were not gonna accept a two-state settlement. Uh, they were negotiating, hoping for a somewhat better deal, and they weren't sure that Omar, <laughs> correctly, that Omar would be able to deliver in any case, given his increasingly weak position. And they were being subject to military attacks by Israel under Omar. So it was a very, it was a very difficult position for them to be in. So another argument, you know, around that same time period, you know, you have in 2000, five, the Israeli um, disengagement, um, uh, pulling the settlers out of Gaza. And as you know, again, another argument that, that comes up a lot is the idea that um, uh, Israel left Gaza, um, uh, Hamas took over, Hamas, you know, began lobbing rockets. So, so therefore, why would a sensible Israeli be willing to repeat that uh, experiment uh, in the West Bank? Well, uh... The, uh, they'd be willing to complete that experiment in the West Bank because if, was, if, if the uh, Hamas had if there was such an agreement uh, and Hamas violated that agreement and Hamas was able to prevail over um, uh, the PLO and, the, uh, and, and Abbas, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of ifs, if, if that would happen, then the Israelis could overwhelmingly come back into the West Bank. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, and, and, and then had that occurred, had there been an agreement and had the Palestinians, notably Hamas, violated that agreement, mm. uh, continued to uh, attack Israel even after mm. uh, a settlement had been reached. And if Abbas was not able to control that, a lot of ifs that, then in the last analysis, there'd be no question about uh, who was responsible for the breakdown of the peace process. And Israel overwhelmingly could come back into the West Bank in a matter of days and in those circumstances, it would have, uh, if not universal, widespread international American, <laughs> and for that matter, my support. So that if you had a situation where an agreement had been reached and there's no question that Hamas uh, uh, was violating it, uh, then Israel would have no, would, would, would then have a strong case, which it, it didn't have, that it had gone the last legitimate mile toward a political settlement Hamas was not prepared to accept it. Uh, this is all hypothetical because we know the evidence is very strong. I don't know if I'd say overwhelming, very strong, because there's some counter evidence that Hamas was indeed prepared to accept, no matter what its rhetoric was, was willing to accept a two-state settlement. In fact, it seems very clear, it seems even clearer now that Hamas is prepared to accept uh, its rule over Gaza as its only uh, only uh, plausible goal that it can it, it can reach. 
So Hamas is not is not uh, crazy. There's not uh, there are crazies on the Palestinian side as there are on the Israeli side, but Hamas is not among them. The, the leadership grudgingly recognizes the political or the power realities of the of the situation, and all the indications are that they are prepared to accept. You let us continue to rule Gaza as we want to rule. And in effect, the conflict is, 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 uh, is, is, if not over, is essentially over. I don't know if I answered your question. There. Yeah, yeah, that's an assertion that, you know, again, would, would surprise a lot of Jewish uh, listeners, as you know, um, and um, who I think would be more likely to see Hamas as, um, uh, as um, you know, a militant group that, that, is, anti that is driven by anti-Semitism and by an ideology of Islamic domination. Um, of the entire of historic Palestine. Um, so I just wonder if, I know you don't have the book in front of you, but I wonder if you could maybe just give a, 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 an example or two of, of, of what's led you to this conclusion about Hamas. Well, uh, not, not one or two things, but many things. As, as, as I say, part of the problem with this kind of discussion is that everything depends on the evidence. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And so I am, uh, asserting certain conclusions which I draw yeah. from the evidence yeah. and the uh, persuasiveness of that yeah. argument depends on the evidence. So in uh, the, the chapter yeah. where I treat this, uh, I have, I point to all the evidence that Hamas's position is uh, far less radical than that it might seem to be the case, that they are not... Uh, immune to the realities of power. Let's put it that way. I'm not, it doesn't require any uh, that you assert that Hamas are, is made up of, uh, of uh, nice fellows. It, yeah. it understands the realities of power. It understands that it has no chance uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to take over, uh, uh, to, to continue a, a conflict with, with, with Israel and that they are reluctantly, grudgingly prepared to accept Gaza. Now, how do I know that to be the case? Well, the chapter lays out all the evidence of that, what they say, what has actually happened, what Israeli analysts themselves now say, and so on. So it's a kind of, you know, I'm in a position where I, I'm, I'm asserting conclusions, yeah. and someone's going to want to say, what's the evidence for that conclusion, especially since it's counted to the received wisdom? Well, right. the evidence is in the book. What can I say? Right. So I guess the last question I have is, is um, we're now in a situation um, where there are folks um, who believe that many Palestinians, uh, in particular, who, who, who argue that it's time to move to think beyond the two-state solution towards the idea of a one equal binational state. Um, uh, I wonder where, where you come down on this. Are you, do you still believe that um, a two-state solution is, is, is possible and is the best outcome, or, or are there alternatives that you think might be more promising? Well, a one-state solution is not one of them. Um, my my argument is that all the all the factors that make a two-state settlement difficult to reach work with twice the force against a, a one-state settlement. Mm -hmm. uh, there's almost no Israeli support for that, and and that's all that counts in a sense. But also, there's very little support for that among the Palestinians. Uh, the two-state settlement, as it has been envisaged for the last 75 years or so uh, is essentially beyond 
attainment right now because of the hardline Israeli position. So what I argue for, and I argue why a one-state settlement is, is, is not possible, and even a two-state settlement, given, given the hardline Israeli position, is not uh, feasible. So I make an argument for a much more limited, uh, uh, I call it a, a, Lux, a Luxembourg option, uh, a much more limited uh, mini Palestinian state in the West Bank, uh, comprised essentially of the six or eight largest Palestinian population centers, which essentially concedes the rest of the West Bank more or less to, to Israel. It's a bad solution, but it's better for the Palestinians than no solution because as things are going now, as you know, Israel is, is, is increasingly making life difficult for the Palestinians and uh, taking more and more in effect of the West Bank, so on and so forth. So I call for a mini state uh, settlement, which so far to my knowledge has had no takers at all. Um, but my argument is what do you think is more realistic? Uh, a one state settlement is, is out of the question given the attitudes of the Israelis, which is enough, and but probably also given the attitudes of the Palestinians, most of them. Uh, the two state settlement as it has been envisaged is uh, almost as dead as a one state settlement because, because of Israeli encroachments and because they don't agree to it anymore. What's left? What's left so far as I can see would be uh, a, 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 this kind of mini state. The alternative over the long run, I think, is for the Palestinians to be in the position of the American Native Americans today, confined to certain reservations uh, uh, second class, uh, not even citizens and so on. So I don't know, uh, I'm very pessimistic about any chances for a two-state settlement. Uh, and I don't know what else, uh, if, if you think a two-state settlement is not possible, you're certainly gonna think a one-state settlement is not possible. Uh, those are what I believe to be the realities. Uh, Professor Slater, thank you uh, very much for this for this conversation. Again, I would encourage um, uh, listeners to read the book. It's called Mythologies Without End, the US, Israel, and the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1917 to 2002. Thanks so much for, for being with us. Thank you very much, Peter.